Hello and welcome to the third episode of the second series of Agents for Hope podcast. My name is Tim Cox, I'm the host of the podcast and today I'm really excited to be talking to the first tech on this series and she's called Ella Mansfield and she's a second year trainee at, at Birmingham University and today we're going to be talking about something slightly kind of new for, for the podcast uh, but we're going to be talking about ADHD and particularly ADHD in girls. And this is something that Ella has done some really interesting kind of work on and has a really interesting perspective on. So I'm not going to kind of tell you what that is. I'm going to let Ella introduce yourself and tell us a bit of the kind of the story of how we came to be having this conversation. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me on. So my name's Ella Mansfield and I'm a trainee educational psychologist studying at Birmingham University. I'm currently on placement with Birmingham City Council. Mm-hmm. I suppose in terms of my interest with ADHD, um, so I have a diagnosis of ADHD. It's something that's been really personal and I haven't really talked to many people about it until quite recently. Um, You know, obviously with getting into the TEP course, it's kind of made me reevaluate things like identity and why I'm going into the career that I am with educational psychology. So it sort of inspired me to do my thesis project based on ADHD, specifically in girls, about their voice and their identity. And I suppose through that, I've come to want to talk a little bit more about it and mm-hmm. about things like activism and activism in research. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think being part of the population that's being researched is something that I've become really, really interested in. Mm. And that's, that's uh, you know, that's kind of fascinating you kind of come to this point of feeling that activism is is kind of required. So what were you kind of experiences of you know having attention deficit hyperactivity disorder because it's something that I guess that educational psychologists trainees assistant psychologists and and anyone that works in education will have probably have met somebody who might have ADHD but very rarely have I met a girl who's had ADHD and almost all of the girls I've met who've had ADHD they were on my master's course um, in Bristol and their diagnosis had come on that course so I'm wondering kind of what your kind of experiences were at school of education and how that kind of diagnosis came about yeah um, I'll tell you a little bit about um, my story and what it was like growing up so I was pretty good at school in terms of academic achievement I think up until kind of GCSE I never really had any issues with learning at all I was just all right but what was missed in the classroom was that I just generally didn't really have much of an idea of what was going on um I was always very quiet I was one of those people that teachers would put you know the louder kids next to um and it always became almost like a secret between me and the naughty kids that I was always kind of asking what was going on. I never really had any idea. So I just kind of floated through secondary school and I didn't really raise any concerns at all. And then when I got to sixth form, my little brother had just been diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, He was diagnosed when he was about 14. After quite a long process of diagnosis and kind of misdiagnosis, and then he just started flourishing with the support that he had. And at the same time that he was diagnosed... I suppose the ADHD caught up with me mm. in some ways. And 
suddenly not paying attention in class at A-level, I was just not getting away with it anymore. And I was just not achieving what I wanted to. So I ended up going through clearing. And though I did end up studying psychology, it wasn't at the university that I wanted to. Mm. So I suppose it was kind of the first time that I had really noticed that I wasn't able to just sit down and learn and just revise. Uh, I don't think I've ever been able to revise, really. And through uni, you know, I would go to the library for hours, hours at a time, and I had all of this motivation to learn, but I would maybe write a paragraph in that time. And it was just slow and frustrating and kind of, you know, painfully boring sitting there and not being able to achieve what I wanted to. Because I had all of these, you know, big ambitions, but I just couldn't achieve them. Mm. And I think it was at that point, I was kind of thinking, well, A-levels, maybe it's just exams, maybe I'm just no good at exams. I mean, studying psychology, I obviously came to understand why people might have some issues, which was similar to what I was feeling. Mm. So I reached out to the university and they suggested that I go and have a dyslexia test. I ended up being diagnosed with dyslexia and dyspraxia, which I now don't really identify with having, um, but it's still something that I kind of officially have. Um, But after that, in my third year of university, I went to my GP saying, oh, I think I might have ADHD. Uh, And I ended up being diagnosed at the end of my third year. And it was just kind of, it was remarkable, I think, um, seeing the jump in my grades when I was diagnosed because I suddenly had all of this support. I went from having kind of like maybe two twos to getting a first overall, which was really exciting. So it's been a really positive thing, I think, for me, educationally. I wish I had been diagnosed earlier. But equally, I think if I hadn't have struggled in school then I wouldn't have the motivation that I do now to sort of you know go into educational psychology so it sort of feels like an intrinsic part of who I am and my identity it's all kind of accumulated in the situation that I'm in now Mm. and I think that's probably why I'm so interested in researching it because I feel that the research that's out there is not necessarily that representative of my kind of more positive experience. I mean I mean firstly you know it's uh you know it's an amazing story and really accessible. And I guess there's a couple of things that I I kind of reflect on when you were talking. I guess there's that kind of that kind of you know sometimes in, in educational psychology there's a real kind of I wouldn't say taboo or stigma, but conflict around diagnostic labels um, and not wanting to rush to them or at least wanting to explore what that would mean uh, in in someone's life. And it seems that you kind of went through school and because you were getting the grades, no one wanted to kind of, there was no sense of helping you thrive beyond that, beyond those those grades. Uh, And that must have felt very frustrating. You know, was it, did it feel frustrating by the time it came to that like third year of university and it was just like, ah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, I think when I had my diagnosis, it was like a real shift in my understanding of why I had been the way that I was. Mm. Um, I think through school, I I don't know, I think I felt limited 
I, uh, I never really felt like I should be trying to do better. I mean, I was a teacher before I got onto the tech course, and I think I was always, uh, when I was asking my pupils' views, kind of what they wanted to get at A-level, I, I was a A-level psychology teacher, I would always ask them about what they wanted because of that experience of just kind of floating along in the middle and not really having any motivation to do better. And I suppose it's like having, it's like looking at an individual basis of zone of proximal development. I feel like whereas the top band and the bottom band have lots of eyes on them, the middle band is sort of easily forgotten. Mm. I mean, I think that, you know, it's something that I certainly felt as one of the kind of drivers for me to work in education and go beyond, you know, I've talked quite a lot on this, on various episodes of this podcast about my early experiences of working in schools and finding that I was kind of becoming the teachers that I hadn't really appreciated particularly um, in my own schooling and you know there'd be this sort of kind of key shift in my thinking around um, could I become the educator that I, I needed when I was at school you know and I think that still probably holds fast today is that I would have liked teachers to have to have listened more or to consider different ways of thinking or not just accept that I was doing fine because the grades were between A star and C at that time and to kind of look beyond that. And I wonder whether that that comes through in your practice now as an element of that activism which comes through having gone through almost all of, you know, your standard education without being seen in some way in or some aspect of you not being seen maybe yeah definitely uh, I think I'm kind of similar to you when I was a teacher I could not understand why we weren't putting well-being at least on a par with academic achievement and I think that reflects the teacher that I would have wanted because mm. I wanted somebody who would pay attention to how I was getting on and how stressful it was not achieving what you're hoping to so yeah I think I think teachers go into teaching for all di- all kinds of different reasons I have a lot of teacher friends who are like very much interested in curriculum and ways of communicating that cu- curriculum and that's what they really love about teaching I think what told me that I didn't want to continue to be a teacher long term and that I wanted to go into educational psychology is that I was just so much more interested in hearing about my pupils' well-being than about what I was teaching them with the curriculum. So, yeah, I think your experience at school definitely kind of dictates what kind of teacher you become. Yeah, it's something that those people in the last episode that I recorded, Nicola Canale was talking about parents that, you know, they have ghosts and angels in the nursery. They have the positive role models and the negative role models, which they see in themselves as parents, as they as they, they experience parenting more and more. And I think there's an element of that with working in education that you, you will experience in yourself negative and positive aspects that you've experienced and they are expressing themselves through how you know your relationships with with the children um and the curriculum that you're 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 teaching and I guess it's something that's always been important to me is that I I remember once an inset day when I was working in school in Bristol we were asked to put this kind of philosophical question forward about school life and I kind of said to the small group I was seeing you know what would school be like if we, if we looked at the children as humans first and, and learn as a close second 
Um, and kind of the the kind of resonating answer was like that would be nice, but we wouldn't get a lot done. And it, yeah, and it kind of it, that that was frustrating to me, but really you know reinforced that at that point I was weighing up: do I become a teacher? Do I still follow this psychology route in the football? That the psychology route is probably just more in the way that I see I see the world. You, and you talked about activism as kind of your kind of standpoint, kind of going forwards now. So why might that be? That suggests that you know activism says to me that something needs to change. And you talked about being an activist in research. So what's the research field like around kind of ADHD and girls' day at the moment? So I found it interesting earlier when you said that most of the girls with ADHD that you knew were kind of diagnosed while they were on their master's course. So they would have been a bit older than a typical boy might be diagnosed with ADHD. So we can see that there's a bit of a a problem with the way that it's diagnosed at the moment because ADHD is being seen as a male disorder and therefore more boys are being diagnosed with it. And kind of research into ADHD is mostly done on men and boys so it's kind of androcentric and it's based around males and because of that research then feeds into the diagnostic criteria and you end up with this kind of circular bias criteria which is based on research into boys and obviously we know that gender is very influenced by society. So the way that boys present ADHD is going to be different from the way that girls present ADHD because there's kind of different societal pressures Mm. and there's a lot of thinking about girls using uh, things like masking so any ADHD symptoms that a girl might have is kind of protected no one can see it it's masked you know I've always had people say oh I would never have guessed that you have ADHD and I think you know it's because I've been hiding it, because mm. it's inappropriate socially for me to be open about when I'm not listening to what people are saying or forgetting to reply to emails or if I can't sit down and read a paper in an evening after a day of work, I'm not going to go and shout about that. And it was kind of the same at school. I'd never put my hand up and say I didn't do my homework because I didn't write it down because I wasn't listening. So, yeah, masking is, is something that's considered to be different with girls and boys with ADHD. And there are other things as well, like low self-esteem difficulties, um, you know, things with uh, peer relationships um, as well, so kind of social issues. Okay. And uh, there's a higher comorbidity with anxiety and depression as well. If I could come in on that, I mean, the kind of idea about masking and just thinking about what you said about it becoming part of your identity, like the whole concept of masking, I guess, would lead to low self-esteem and difficulties in peer relationships and anxiety and depression because I I guess you're not being the person that you could be and, you know, thinking kind of a mass lobbying idea around self-actualisation. How can you self-actualise if you are um, hiding part of yourself? And I guess that, you know, I guess that can be the conflict if teachers and educators see... um, self-actualizing as getting good grades and it's actually it's this, this other element of of you which never comes out until it's allowed to be expressed yeah yeah identity is a, a huge kind of topic within ADHD and female research 
Um, I've just finished a systematic review about autism and girls. Uh, you can see a bit of a, a trend in what I'm uh, interested in. Uh, autism and ADHD are often spoken about in a very similar way within the umbrella of neurodevelopmental conditions. Uh, and uh, autism research says a lot of the same things. So girls are more likely to mask because of social pressures. Um, and it seems that girls are more aware of that. And it, it really reminded me of when I was working as a mentor in the same sick form college that I was training to be a teacher at. And I had a pupil who had autism. And we had so many conversations about identity. Yeah. And that related to gender identity and also about where autism finished and where they began. Because how are you supposed to develop a sense of identity and a sense of self when your entire growing up you're trying to change the things about you um, that you perceive as being bad. Uh, and those things are kind of reinforced by scientific research, which gives this really negative viewpoint of the symptoms um, that you have. And I think within ADHD, that seems to be a really big issue for girls and being able to understand themselves. I mean, it's, I mean you know, this is like one of the first times that I'm kind of, I guess I, I was coming from a standpoint of seeing, you know, autism and ADHD. It can be like it's like they have this this thing, but it doesn't define them as a person. But who am I to say that because I'm not experiencing that? Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. it, it comes from a well-meaning place, but but it's like having not experienced it and not had to decide where a label starts and where I end. You know that sort of thing. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to hear you talking about it in that way. Um, yeah, I think it's a really difficult one to get your head around because you're right, it comes from a really nice place. You know, ADHD doesn't define you, but actually, how do I know what parts of me are ADHD and what parts aren't? I think I've just spent so long just going along the lines of, oh yeah, I've got ADHD, but don't worry about it. Like, don't worry about all those negative things, they don't matter. I'm on medication, so I fix myself. Um, and I kind of always sort of, whenever I start talking about ADHD and how it affects me, particularly professionally, that's the route I would usually take. It's fine, I fixed it, it's okay. Mm. And actually, I think that's not necessarily the best way of coming to terms with it. I think having more of a positive outlook on the negative sides to it, which there are, but also an awareness of the positive things that it brings. And I think those positive things, I would love to have them as part of my personality and have them recognised. But again, it's so entangled that it's difficult to define what is that kind of negative disorder and mm. what is yourself, like what is identity. Yeah, I mean, as you know, there has been a kind of a move to talk about autistic spectrum condition in, in recent years. Has there been a similar move around attention deficit hyperactivity condition? Or is it, will it stay as disordered, do you think? Yeah, I, mean, I was thinking about this the other day when I was thinking about how I was going to present this because obviously talking about it on a large scale is quite daunting. And I think the way that I would describe it is that I have a neurodevelopmental condition, you know. I don't 
like the word disorder because for me, like I say, ADHD is quite positive, but it's not for everybody. I think you've got to work out individually kind of where you sit on that. But I think condition is a more positive word than disorder to me. Mm. I think that, well, in the DSM, it calls it a disorder. And I don't know, I feel a bit weird about it, I suppose. I think in terms of calling it, say, like a learning disability or a learning difficulty, it just it doesn't really fit with that particularly well because it doesn't just impact learning. It's mm. also, you know, socialisation and motivation is kind of this bigger scale thing than just learning. So I would say that doesn't quite fit it for me. And then uh, for disability I think it technically fits into the scope of disability kind of as a definition in it's kind of substantial it's long term it has a like you know a negative impact on everyday abilities to a certain extent but I uh, I wouldn't I suppose I wouldn't say that it is a disability so I think condition is probably what I would prefer but like I say everybody's different so you know maybe it's just a, a question of asking yeah I guess it, to some extent, kind of the research into this condition or disorder or disability may reflect the individual's understanding uh, in some aspects. So if the research is really negative about its, its impact, then we're more likely to talk about it as disorder if we're kind of being evidence-based researchers. So uh, what is that kind of research like out there at the moment about it? Is it, is it changing? Is it kind of quite static around one, one thing or the other? Yeah, I think the majority of research into ADHD kind of across genders tends to be quite negative because the research often comes from clinical settings. Um, lots of it comes from America where they certainly have different viewpoints on how ADHD should be managed. And there are kind of cases where pharmaceutical companies who produce ADHD medication have kind of sponsored research. Mm. Um, so I've seen quite a number of papers from the US where that's the case. Uh, lots of research is also along the terms of kind of the scientific method. It's very medicalised. It really does kind of highlight difficulties. Uh, it highlights problems. And I think it creates the idea that ADHD is kind of really only about negative long-term outcomes and people with it will demonstrate really socially inappropriate behaviour and won't be able to do well academically and they'll be less liked by the people around them, kind of, you know, socially atypical. Mm. And because we've just talked about how intrinsically linked neurodevelopmental conditions are with identity, you know, if you're reading papers that are saying that all of these things are going to be wrong with you because you've been diagnosed with this condition then surely that becomes kind of entrenched in your personality and you take that on as what a professional says that you should be like. There's been a very small shift towards female-only studies and I would say that the majority of them have been in the last five years. And that's something that you'll see more of in autism research. They're kind of similar. And I would say that autism research is kind of slightly ahead of ADHD research in terms of exploring the impact of gender. Okay. Um also, there's been a shift towards, particularly in these studies where you've got wholly female samples, kind of not just going for samples of women who have an official diagnosis, but also women who have self-diagnosed. And that's because their diagnosis comes later in life. It tends to be harder to get that diagnosis. 
And so some researchers argue that this group of kind of undiagnosed women represent a, a sort of important sector of the ADHD female community. So they want to represent them in the research. Um, the other thing that I think has changed is that there has been like a very small shift towards qualitative research. And it seems to have come out more recently. Um, a lot of previous research has been looking at reducing the population down to stats and numbers and trying to generalise to find things that are similar. But now it's kind of got a shift towards looking at the environmental and contextual factors. And um, like I said, identity and personal voice. Mm. But through this, there's been research that's kind of shown results that relate to this idea of ADHD as being like a double-edged sword. Is kind of both positive and negative impacts, which I feel is way more helpful for those diagnosed with the condition and it sort of fits my experiences a lot better um in terms of participant voice there's also a very small amount of research that's looking at asking participants to share their experiences a very small number of these are you know wholly female samples much of it is more than 50 percent male so the research that I'm really interested in is kind of at the subsection of two very niche areas um, where participant voice, uh, qualitative research and female-only samples kind of come together, which, as you can imagine, is a tiny amount. So I'd say it really has been a very niche change, but in my opinion, it's been a change in the right direction. Uh, where does that ch- change come from? Has that is that just the kind of scientific understanding that there are these populations of women who are missing out, or is there... You know, a feminist push for this? Yeah, so I mean, feminist research does seem to be on the rise. Um, it's important to remember that feminist research is not just about women, it's, it's also about minority groups in general. And I think that is something that is progressing, particularly with the rise of things like BLM and disability rights. Um, specifically with ADHD, the reason why there's been more of an increase in this area might just well, it might be because some research is kind of showing that in child populations there's more boys than girls with ADHD, rather than with adult populations there's more of a 50-50 split. And again, that's not necessarily looking at people who are diagnosed, it's looking at those who would maybe fit the diagnosis, so those who are self-diagnosed or undiagnosed. So I think because there's been more recognition that women are affected by it, Uh, And these stats suggest that perhaps they're being let down in terms of the support that they receive. Uh, So that could explain why there's been more of a a shift towards female-only samples and feminist research. Mm. I mean, that's that's really interesting. It kind of just, you know, makes me feel that, you know, if you're getting these kind of 50-50 populations in the adult populations, then the natural inference is like, well those females must have had it before and we've just not seen it. So what is it about our schools and the way that we see female children which um, stops us seeing that or helps it, you know, or makes us collude with that sort of masking uh, process? Yeah, um, I think a lot of it is to do with kind of a, a gender bias which is leading to girls being missed and this idea that maybe the diagnostic criteria needs to be kind of shifted slightly for girls. There's also some stuff I read, which I will approach tentatively, uh, which is the idea that ADHD is not necessarily a lifelong condition, in that you can grow out of it. So, 
Some studies have found that boys who are diagnosed when they're younger, less of them meet diagnostic criteria, you know, after their teenage years. Mm. And that might be because of kind of neurological developmental areas that I'm not particularly well versed in. Um, I suppose along the same vein, there's some evidence that girls, as they grow older, they might grow into ADHD. Uh, I mean, again, they might have got these results because of like societal bias mm. or there might be some kind of neurological explanation. But I think it's really interesting. Um, I don't really think there's an answer to that. No, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I guess the the way that I'd thought about ADHD going into this conversation, that it's kind of very sort of kind of, it's like a, a loud disorder you know, it kind of, you know, I go into consultations and parents or teachers say, my child is so ADHD. Um, you know, there's this sort of kind of thin story around it, but your kind of explanation of it actually, that there's other elements of it which are intrinsic to kind of identity formation and that sort of thing. Yeah. That, you know, you'd think quite logically that actually if you're holding all of those things, and you know masking uh, and becoming you know seeming acceptable to society then it's you know you would see it coming out later on it's very hard to to to, to keep that under wraps if that makes sense i mean i think this perception of adhd as being like a loud disorder is true for some people but i think there are a lot of misconceptions because adhd is actually an umbrella term um, and it has different categories so you have the inattentive subtype which is what I have uh, then you have the hyperactive impulsive subtype which is that kind of classic bouncing off the walls kind of thing that you describe and then there's combined which is where you have both the inattentive and the hyperactive I think when uh, when children are identified early they're far more likely to have those in- external symptoms where they're like showing that they cannot concentrate and they have that hyperactivity. And girls are less likely to have that hyperactivity. Research is showing that they're more likely to be inattentive. So you can't see inside somebody's head. So how are we supposed to find out if a girl in you know, your class as a teacher is able to really concentrate unless you spend a lot of time assessing what their understanding is? And then you're sure that everybody is aware of what's going on which kind of brings us back <laughs> full circle, um, back to the idea that girls could be missed in school. But, I mean, yeah, there, there's still a lot of problems with the idea that if a child is not being an explicit problem and distracting people, then that means that they're absolutely fine. But we know that there could be internal symptoms that could go unnoticed, which still could impact their education in, in really quite a significant way. Yeah. So... Given all of that, and you know, the conversation we've had so far has been very enlightening so far to me. You know, how can we, as you know, educational professionals and educational psychologists, and you know, people working in the fields, research around this, and what? How can we be more active in, in making schools more friendly and open places to to girls who might be um, have ADHD? Well, I think a lot of it is to do with Uh, an understanding of the variation in ADHD. We mentioned earlier that a lot of EPs are not necessarily in support of diagnosis and I would somewhat agree with that. I think that 
labeling and diagnosis can be very damaging when it's not handled correctly and it's not kind of supported efficiently. I suppose it comes back to good teaching practices and EPs can of course support this in making sure that every child in the class really matters. I think constant kind of checking back in with the teacher to make sure that every child's understanding is where it should be uh, would be certainly a really good place to start. I feel that if teachers had more of an understanding of how neurodevelopmental conditions can go under the radar for girls so that they're aware and can kind of individualise and keep inclusive practice going in their everyday teaching, then that would be of real benefit as well. In terms of how EPs can make change within research, I think that with the more positivist research that I spoke about earlier, which focuses on generalisation, the emphasis is often on the idea that we need to change the diagnostic criteria so that more girls are diagnosed so that they can access support. But this support is often in the form of kind of medication. I mean, just to be clear, I suppose my viewpoint on medication is uh, kind of neither pro nor con. Uh, I do, however, feel that support, particularly for children in schools, needs to be more than just medication. It needs to be, um, you know, support and talking based um, because then we focus on the idea of reducing the perceived negative symptoms and I don't necessarily feel like that's the best way of doing things I feel like within research and within the classroom there should be more of an emphasis on listening to the children and young people with ADHD so that you can treat them as individuals and gain an understanding of what their symptom profile is like and how they perceive the positives and negatives that that brings and offer support to help kind of alleviate the negatives in a way that suits the individual. Also, I feel that qualitative research, such as that that we discussed about identity, is really, really important for both teachers and also for EPs to be aware of, because it does install this idea of really treating every child as an individual without making assumptions as to what uh, their life might be like based on just a diagnostic label yeah yeah i think there's there's lots of things that i guess eps could do in order to help those people understand the teachers understand kind of school systems to understand and it's also to help you know young people be be heard really that those seem to be kind of core values of many of the the guests that i have on this on the on this podcast so i guess there's lots of things that we could be thinking about there Yeah, definitely. I think the other thing that really comes to mind with what uh, EPs can do is through uh, ADHD training. It just really needs to be balanced. It really does. Personally, I like the idea of ADHD kind of being presented as like a double-edged sword. So yeah, you've got these negative symptoms, which don't really work with the way that society works and obviously the way that the school system works but you've also got positive things like hyperfixation mm. which can be uh, a really fantastic thing it's where you just completely lose track of time and you're just wrapped up in something of real interest uh, and that's how I feel about educational psychology when I'm doing union placement work I just 
find it a really helpful tool in a lot of ways because it suggests that I'm really into what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you can really perceive that as a true positive. So it would be great to see more positive symptoms or at least this double-edged sword idea being presented in training about ADHD. So Ella, you kind of, you, you, you've kind of hinted a few times and spoke about this perhaps being your kind of uh, thesis research and talk about kind of an activist stance towards that. Um, can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. So I'm going to be doing a bit of a project um, over the next year and a half about accessing the experiences of teenage girls with ADHD. So for that, I'm going to be using a feminist research method. Um, I'm going to have a purely female sample, kind of leaning away from comparison studies. I feel that if I went for a comparison between males and females, it suggests that females are the minority and kind of subsidiary group, and that men are representing normality. And I'm leaning into qualitative methods because, as I said before, reducing that sample to a set of numbers of figures seems wrong when I'm trying to access and promote the voice of my participants thoughts and experiences so I'm going to be trying to find out about my participants experiences at school uh, so that I can maybe find some overarching themes you know not to generalize but to understand more about my participants as an exploratory study so yeah, I imagine I'll be looking again for that double-edged sword about positives and negatives and how both of those things impact girls. I'm kind of hoping that it will provide a platform for those girls as, as we talked about activism. It's, uh, it's sort of giving them somewhere where they can express their feelings, uh, where we can make real change with that, whether it's just on an individual basis or whether it could be made into uh, some kind of theory that might be able to impact other girls' lives. So, yeah, exciting stuff to come. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like something that's, like you say, exciting. Now, I'd be really interested to hear the, the kind of the, the findings of that and kind of how you'd interpret that. But it also seems that something that's, like, really uh, applicable to the EP role. You know, it's kind of thing that we'd want to be doing. We don't seem to be a particularly, like, comparative profession a lot of the time, you know. So it kind of fits with how we'd approach things. So it's, it seems like a really interesting uh, piece of research from from a number of examples. And perhaps we should meet again to discuss the findings of that um, later on down the line. Definitely, that would be that would be great. Um, I think EPs are kind of unique in the way that we really embrace qualitative research. I know so many other TEPs and newly qualified EPs that have done really similar projects. We sort of very sort of equally niche um, or under-researched groups, and I think it's great how we embrace these sorts of exploratory studies in such an enthusiastic way. Mm, yeah, I think it's yeah, I think it's largely because it kind of then directly applies to the work that we do. It's something you can pick up and and try yourself, I guess. We talked a bit a, a little bit um, when we were kind of planning this, and I guess we're coming to the end of our our conversation now but about kind of your experiences of having ADHD as a TEP as specifically a TEP and you know um it's it's something that I guess I hadn't really thought about but that kind of concept of having 
this condition and doing something at such a high level um, in terms of academics you know what have your been experiences of that and whether you'd have any advice for people who were thinking about a career in educational psychology but were worried about what how that could interact with having ADHD or something like that I think my experience has been broadly positive um got lots of support supportive people around me uh, and my cohort at uni are absolutely fantastic uh, we've obviously had chats and discussions about this in the past and in general people do ask questions um, I think a lot of the reason as to why they do is because I'm quite open about it but you know they've always been very sensitive uh, it's always been quite nice uh, and it's certainly always been on my terms and it's given me sort of a chance to reflect when I applied to the course, I think I mentioned my ADHD in the interview, but it was kind of almost in passing. I, I don't think I mentioned it in a, anywhere else. Um, like I said earlier, uh, my view on it has changed. Like I think I felt it was a really personal thing, um, but since then I sort of opened up a bit more about it, having kind of started off my thesis work. I think my biggest worry about telling people about my ADHD is that it could be used in a in a sort of condescending way. So, for example, saying things like, oh, you've done so well to get this far, uh, <laughs> almost as it, if it's kind of like despite my ADHD, uh, which I find very odd because really I feel like a huge reason as to why I'm here is because of it. Um, there's this idea in research that when we talk about disclosure, um, a lot of people do hold back and in telling people because of a fear of being condescended towards and being treated differently yeah. uh, or people might feel that you're using it as an excuse and these are all things that I do worry about um, when I'm sort of weighing up I suppose whether to tell people about it or not mm. I found it a little tricky to identify when the right time is to disclose I think when I do it tends to be as an explanation so usually it's quite functional but interestingly, I think it really helps in connecting with children. Uh, it's that, you know, that very short, sharp kind of rapport that you have to build with a child when you're doing a piece of casework or assessment. I always kind of go through the whole, like, oh, my name is Ella, this is my job, this is why we're talking to each other. And I talk about how the reason why um, I can help you is because I struggled at school and when I got support I found that I really loved learning mm. and I think that just kind of gives them an idea as to why it's important to learn and it, it's it's been successful so far so uh, I think that's kind of a, a good one as well so I think it does help in some situations but not in others I suppose in doing this I'm being kind of hugely indiscriminate about who I'm disclosing to which really doesn't sit hugely comfortably with me mm. um but I suppose I'm wanting to advocate for the group that I'm part of and spread knowledge about how varied ADHD can be um and it's kind of given me a ch an opportunity to dispel like any misconceptions that people might have which I can only really see as a good thing yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about that kind of, you know, 
you're saying that you're kind of this broadcasting level of disclosure within this conversation, but I guess what you're trying to do through your research and your general standpoint and your activism around this is not just say, I'm Ella and I have ADHD and that's the end of the story. And I'm going to allow you to paint whatever picture you want with that information. You're just saying, you know, these are the experiences I have. You know, this is my story. This is the, the broader story of girls who have ADHD or don't get diagnosed with ADHD for this reason. And this is what I'm doing about it. Um, so, so it has flipped, you know, flipped to that thing where you're, uh, you're um, identifying uh, within yourself, you know, this is an experience and this can help other people. Um, even though I'm not going to say your story is, is my story every time, it's just like actually there's elements of our story um, that help us to, to build a new story together. That is such a lovely way of putting it. Uh, yeah, I suppose it's being in control of the narrative rather than sort of having a short conversation about it and then coming away with possibly negative, misconstrued viewpoints. I think that kind of extended explanation of who I am and why I'm doing what I'm doing is something that I feel very privileged to be able to have the opportunity to do and to have that opportunity to share it with others as well is just really, really fantastic. I think surprisingly, in a way, it's given me an idea of how my future participants in my thesis project might feel about talking about their strengths and difficulties. Uh, it's really not an easy thing. I think that this has kind of helped me to understand how to put them at ease in the process. Um, so that is really good. And also, it's given me an idea of how you can kind of formulate your thoughts when you're given that platform to be able to um, express yourself. So Ella, we're kind of coming to the, the end of our conversation. I've learned a huge amount um, about ADHD uh, from listening to your story. And I guess that, that tells me that I need to have criticality about the kind of story about ADHD that I might be imposing on my work, um, you know, bring and, and have that criticality about just looking at the positivist research around ADHD and, and you know, perhaps using my EP practice in a more coherent way, which, uh, which also provides that space for people to identify with those labels. So it's, it's been a quite transformative conversation for me. I'm just wondering if you kind of have any kind of concluding remarks or kind of takeaway messages that you'd like the listeners to, to go away with. I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head really there. Um, it's all about being questioning about the medica medicalised model uh, that we've been presented with about ADHD and trying to move past that, moving past the idea that it's all to do with concentration or it's all to do with hyperactivity because uh, there's more to it than that. I think hearing about people's personal experiences with neurodevelopmental disorders is so important. Um, and that's because it's all so internal. So hearing about experiences is really, in my view, the best way of learning about it. The other thing is the idea of ADHD as being this double-edged sword um, and questioning that negative uh, discourse that's been created in medicalised research and moving past that in practice, uh, you know, questioning whether the way that we present symptoms is helpful for the individual and whether that's actually reflective of how they feel 
And I suppose within that, you know, being mindful that because we know that with uh, neurodevelopmental disorders, identity is often really intrinsically connected to the label. So, yeah, there we go. So that's my my take-home message. Okay, that's really helpful. And it's certainly something that I'm going to go away and take action on probably next week uh, when I'm writing my reports. So, so thank you very much, Ella. And it'd be great to hear from you again in the future. Well, thank you very much, Tim. It's been a pleasure.